is the future. Hello, and welcome to the Alternate Futures podcast. Today, I'm here with Mark Gillespie. Mark is an indie author from Glasgow, Scotland, who's now living in New Zealand. A former professional musician, he turned to writing in his 30s. He currently writes mostly thriller horror novels, but he has a large backlist of post-apocalyptic and dystopian fiction, which is what we'll be discussing mostly today. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining me from the bottom of the world, or perhaps it's the top. I don't know who's to say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Edwin. Thank you for having me on the show. So yeah, your uh, your sun has just come up and ours is uh, ready to go down. I, I hope that's not a broader metaphor for things, <laughs> especially with regard to England. Yeah. Well, the sun is up right now. I was even going to sit by the window, but it looked like a really dodgy background. I was like, that's the real sky. But no, I, I just relocated. But the sun's up now, but give it about 10 minutes and it'll be peeing down with in. You have a nice backdrop uh, on the video, although this is a podcast, so people only be able to see it if I put it on YouTube. But uh, it almost looks like a Zoom backdrop. <laughs> Quite a nice it's, uh, it's like a, a house is like a little log cabin. It's up on a hill because Auckland is very, very hilly. And we rented this little place. It's quite high up. We've got a gorgeous view of like Rangitoto Island, which is the youngest volcano around Auckland. And I was kind of researching that recently. And I was like, I, I, I thought it was extinct, but it's actually dormant. So, which means it could go off, but it's probably unlikely. But if it goes off, I can see it. So I can get a head start on the run. <laughs> yeah, you might, you might be able to get out of there. <laughs> Yeah, man, be reversing down the driveway. And honey, the uh, volcano smoking. <laughs> <laughs> the things you don't think you'll see in life, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, you were in Scotland, so you, you probably weren't, well, in my Canadian geography. <laughs> How far is that from Iceland then? It's, I mean, technically it's not that far. We've been to Iceland, but if a volcano goes off, I remember when the, the ash clouds came over the UK from Iceland, we saw some of that, but I think... This volcano right now is a lot closer than Iceland to Scotland. So if Rangitoto does happen to go off, it's it's good night from me, you know. <laughs> it was nice <laughs> knowing you. But we've moved from like Australia, where you have all the snakes, the spiders, the sharks. You've got droughts and heat waves and bushfires. And now we've got earthquakes and volcanoes. So I like to live dangerously, you know. I've always wondered about yeah. Australia for the, for the fun animals that are living there. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's interesting. When I first went over, I was I was taken with all that. You know, I thought I was checking everything, the towel for spiders and stuff. And But these, I never saw anything in five years. This, I saw one snake and trust me, like these animals, they, they're trying to avoid us way more than we're, it's best. You know, we, we, we won't run into them unless you accidentally stand on a snake, right. in which case you're done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they got some nasty ones there, don't they? Yes, they do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, you mentioned on your author insights segment on indiebookshowcase.com that you started writing in 2011 and that's coincidentally in the future of london that's the big beginning of the of that series that five book series yeah. with the london riots yeah. is i assume that wasn't really a coincidence what is it it was actually i suppose it was a coincidence because i started writing and at the very start of 2011 and the riots that inspired that book l2011 happened in August, if I if I remember correctly. So that was kind of a big year for me. It kind of started me writing, uh, which was just short stories. You know, the way that people start with short stories, that's what I started with, bad ones. And then later that year, I remember the riots going off and just kind of having an interest in apocalyptic slash dystopian, thinking that 
when I was watching this on my feed, the Facebook feed, you would see people, because I knew quite a few people from London who were posting stuff, thinking this is what it would actually look like. You know, this is, usually you think uh, zombies are EMPs or something, but you never really thought about people from maybe the underclass kind of just rising up and just saying to hell with it and just looting and... Because it lasted about, I suppose, at its peak three days, but that was a long three days when police couldn't stop them, you know, and, and there was many people who weren't actively looting, but if they joined in, that, my imagination was like, think the worst, think the worst, you know, that's horror, that's apocalypse. What if it kept going? And that was really the basis for that book. But yeah, it was coincidence, really, that I started writing in 2011. But then the event that kind of inspired the first novel I wrote happened in the middle of that year. Because, yeah, I mean, my wife and I were here in England already at that point. And uh, we'd actually come from the Middle East via the Gulf War II. So we were there during the Gulf War II. And then, you oh know, we come, come to England, we watch the Arab Spring. And then, of course, you know, the London riots. And we're just watching it sort of creep slowly north. No, no, it won't come here. It won't come here. <laughs> Disaster seems to be to... following you. So the moral is don't live where you live. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It does kind of feel that way. Although now most of it seems to be in the US. Although, well, I guess you could argue, argue it's global now too. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Is anywhere safe? Well, here's quite safe. That was one appeal of New Zealand's, you know, we're kind of so far apart from the rest of the world and we kind of got the whole COVID thing under control for the most part, you know, and Australia's back in lockdown. I heard that. So we are kind of just fleeing the, the pandemic. <laughs> really, the only place left to go is Antarctica after this. Yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll be like the thing. Yeah, it feels like you're you're in the right genre these days, the apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not hard to be inspired when you when you wake up and look at the news. If you do look at the news, I, I tend to try and avoid it these days because it's just so depressing at times. And then you maybe go online. Well, I look for social media and the comments and you uh, you think, oh my God, I can see why people want to go off the grid and or at least just turn off their their social media because it's so it can be very bleak, you know, sometimes. And, and I'm one of those people, unfortunately, that wakes up in the morning and I kind of, to wake up, I reach for my phone at the side of the bed and then I always regret it. You know, I always regret it. I think, why did I do that? Why don't I just lie there and stare at the ceiling for like 10 minutes, <laughs> you know, yeah. or let the dog run over my face or something, something more fun than actually reading the news. Get up, go for a run or something to get away from yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Exercise. So you just mentioned then that you started uh, writing, was it another novel then in the middle of 2011 or was it still, was it part of the... the that was the first one, yeah. The, I think, well, I, actually I don't think I started writing that till later because I was doing mostly as writers do short stories for a long time, just trying to see if I could do it. And then I would show them to friends and, you know, I think, I, I wonder, I think they were just saying, being polite and saying, yeah, this is, this is good, Mark, you should keep going, but... Even though the stories were probably garbage, they they were they were encouraging enough to say keep going, and so I did keep going. I didn't really attempt a novel till much later, but the the event inspired L two zero eleven was in that year. But I think it was maybe even two thousand thirteen before I actually tried writing it as a novel. Up until then, it was short stories, and I did some nonfiction too as well. To because I had gone back to uni by that point to be a mature student, I'd stopped being a musician. I'd gone back to study. 
and I was writing in my spare time, both fiction and nonfiction. I was making money with the nonfiction. I wasn't making any money with the fiction. And so I kept going like that up until, almost up until we came to Australia in 2015. And then that was like a big turning point. It's like, well, I'm no longer in uni. I'm not a musician anymore. It's like, what do I do? And it was either pursue, I was kind of like a freelance sports journalist. I was doing boxing and mixed martial arts articles for websites. And so it was either go with that or try as a, a fiction author. And, you know, after a conversation with my wife, she said, just do the fiction, go for it, because you'll be miserable. And she was right, because nonfiction, you have to rely on a lot of people to get back to you with interview quotes and stuff. And it's it's very slow. Fiction, you're mostly in control. So I I, I went for it. And at the same time as we moved, there was this... In, in Melbourne, there was this intensive publishing course over two days, and there was like a traditional publisher, there was a traditional agent, there was a, a sort of media course, and there was uh, indie publishing. And I had dabbled in indie publishing before then, but I went to that intensive publishing, and I was just so unengaged with the traditional side. They were just like, the whole gist of it was, how do you sell yourself as an author to us? And then we went to the indie publishing thing on the second day. And it was just night and day. This guy was like, here's what you can do to find readers. And here's what you can do to earn a living, to make a career of this. And I walked out of that and I was like, okay, I'm going to go for it. And I'm going to do it indie. And I've been, you know, very, I've spoke up for indie quite a lot over the past five years. Because there's, even now, there's still a bit of flack about being an indie publisher, but it's, for me, it's if you're starting out as an author, it's definitely the, the right way to go. If you're willing to put in the work. It's not the easy way, but it's I think it's the, the best way. I think I guess the bad flack still comes from that percentage of books that sort of aren't very professionally done by those indie authors that perhaps don't take as much time as the rest. But so there's some definitely some really good quality indie stuff out there. Yeah, I mean, I've been watching over the past five years. I don't know about yourself, but I've always had an eye on it and I'm in many author groups online and I see I see the quality just getting better and better people realize that you need you need a good cover and even if you can't afford a designer um there are ways you can even make your own cover I, I don't really recommend making your own cover but if you can and you have skills I mean like a software like Canva the website Canva you can do a lot with that and I don't think people should be put off indie because maybe they don't have the funds for a a designer or a professional editor, there, there are ways around that and money shouldn't get in the way if you've got a story to tell or you want to put a book out. Just do the best you can with what you have, like time-wise, money-wise. But yeah, generally you want we want to get our covers as good as, if not better than traditional publishing. You know, It's just good for the whole movement to get, to get that respect because there's still, you know, when I talk to people and they say, what do you do? I, I always say I'm an indie author. Nobody really in the street kind of knows what that means. Everyone knows what a traditionally published author is. You go to an agent, you go to a publisher, you get a, a deal. Indie author, well, we do it ourselves. And then I explain what they're doing and they're like, yeah, okay. You know, it's just the same as a musician making a living from putting music out themselves on YouTube or maybe getting it to Spotify. You have to do all the selling yourself. It's It's definitely not easy, but... It's interesting that the, even now, most people don't really know what an indie author is. 
Yeah, it's interesting. As soon as you remove the gatekeepers, all of a sudden everyone thinks it's it's just easy and you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, there's nothing to do. No, I mean you still have to you've got the creative side and then you've got the business side. And you know, I think most writers from what I see love the creative side and a lot of us, myself included, wrestle with the business side and the the numbers. I mean, mathematics is not my strong point. In any level, I was actually held back a year in one subject at school, and it was maths, you know, and I didn't even turn up for that year. I just turned up on the last day and said, hi, because I just hated numbers so much. But I've trained myself to do the basics. There are people who go in depth with analytics. I don't do that. I just kind of look what I'm spending, what I'm making. And, you know, there's only so much time in a day, and I would much rather do writing than do um, than count numbers. Although, you know, ads can be enjoyable on Facebook. You get to do creative there. But it's it's the marketing side. I would love to just hand it to someone else, but there's nobody else to do it, unfortunately. Yeah, no one who uh, charges less than tens of thousands of dollars. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. And what's the point? You know, you might as well just put that into the ads and lose money and then break even and then hopefully start making a profit. Yeah, you're doing fairly well, though, it sounds like. I've got a lot of books out and to be honest, a lot of them don't make much money, but there's a top few plus the box sets. It's the, you know, I, I get to make a nice four figure profit and it's because of the volume. It's not because I have any breakaway hits or anything. It's because of volume. I'm in Kindle Unlimited as well. And that was a, I, I, I miss not being wide and being available on other stores, but right now, I have to make that decision to be exclusive to Amazon just because I get a better payday at the end from the, the, the Kindle Unlimited page reads. I would love to go wide again and I might try and take some stuff and, and do it slowly. But, you know, that Amazon payout is kind of tempting, especially when you're relying on it, you know, mm, but they yeah. can kind of imprison you a wee bit. So since, since we've kind of diverted a bit from our topics, I would just wanted to, <laughs> yeah. to catch your, your opinion then on the, sorry, the, the, perhaps the future of, of indie publishing, say in the next five or so years, what you, what you are watching and what you think might be happening. I think it's, I just think it's going to be much more established. I think there's going to be a stronghold. I think more and more authors will recognize that traditional publishing isn't quite the ideal that it appears to be, because I suppose when you think about traditional publishing, you think I've got an agent, I've got the deal, I can just sit back and write, but you can't do that in this day and age anymore. You have to, most traditional publishers will expect you to do social media. You have to still promote yourself almost as much as if you were on indie. You can't rely on them to get the sort of cover you want. It's just not the ideal that I think people want it to be or hope it would be and I think they will look at indie and see well this is much more attractive if I'm willing to put in the time so I think over the next five years more people will more indie authors will show but more indie authors will stay the course and not so much seek traditional publishing instead traditional publishing will come and seek indie authors and maybe snap some of them away so that they become maybe hybrid authors where they put out their own stuff and they get deals. Yeah, I just think, I think especially with the last year and the pandemic and the fact that nobody was going to bookstores as much, it just wasn't a good time to be a traditional publishing. And 
I, I just don't know if they'll recover, really, to be honest, Edwin. I don't think they'll pick up. And just from where it was in the 90s and the 80s where they had a strong, I think it's just going to go more and more in favour of indie authors, to be honest. I just see us getting stronger. Eventually we'll gain respect from the, the general yeah, public. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and, you know, when you say I'm an indie author it's, to someone in the street, they will actually know what you're talking about and you won't have to just explain. It's like an indie musician, but for books. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's exactly the same thing. It's the, uh, indie musicians, the, the, the path for a musician, you would send a demo, get a record deal, and you're, you know, there you're a musician, blah, blah, blah. But nowadays, you don't even have to do that. D- digital... The digital revolution, for lack of a better phrase, has changed things, but I think some people are still catching up mentally with that. Uh, I always like talking about it in the indie publishing. Um, yeah, yeah me too. Definitely. Around the field for, I don't know, 15 or 16 years, I think, although not as prolific as you, for sure. I, I diverted myself <laughs> into a variety of other other aspects of it. Well, you've, yeah, you've, you've got yeah. family and done other stuff. I've just been like boom, bullheaded for the past five years. It's yeah. first time I've seen daylight. <laughs> <laughs> now I wish I, I wish I had that direct focus to sit down and just write, but I, I get distracted by all the other other parts of it. So I, I set yeah. up uh, Utility Fog Press, my own sort of publishing company for for uh, doing multi-author anthologies, and then facilitated self-publishing. I was became a digital artist because well, I discovered that you could actually create the artwork for the covers um, using software you can get for free. Oh, so I was like, oh, well, I'll, I'll become a digital artist for a while. Yeah. <laughs> just sort of segued into all kinds of different things and come back around to to writing now. So hopefully I can get into that. There's always you know, so much to do, yeah. isn't there? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So moving on then to, to some more of your books. So you have a, a three book Dystopiaville series, uh, which are three yeah. standalone books. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is when you said the title of your uh, podcast was Alternate Futures, I immediately thought of the dystopia of our books, which was never meant to be a series. I actually just all, I don't really tend to flock to series as much. I've always forced myself into series. So these were standalones. I think I had, I wrote the second one, Waxworld first, as a standalone novella, put this sort of old school horror cover on it. And it just did not see. I thought it was like one of the best things I'd done and it just did not, nobody was buying it. Like, and the people that read it enjoyed it because it was, it was pretty far out, but <laughs> nobody was buying it. And then maybe I just let it sit for a while and maybe 10 months later, I wrote a book called Shut Up and Die, which is the first book technically in that series. But I, re- I recognised the, the themes of like a dystopian, a horrific future, one is where, you know, people are, we've become so addicted to noise and stimulation that when we take off our headphones, we get like jittery and stuff. And so it's this future where we are kind of stimulation addicts and wax world is, oh, that's just too weird to explain that one. This is a guy who wakes up and everything is frozen around him. And after that, it just goes all over the place. But I recognize these two dystopian horror themes of, of kind of terrible futures that seem uh, too far-fetched to be true but or maybe you know you never know and then I wrote uh, a third one Killing Floor which is uh, just about this band who kind of go to the country for a kind of weekend of writing songs and they're just sitting around watching tv and then all of a sudden the BBC come on and they just put this announcement that there's going to be like a cull of the human population 
And after that, it just it's, they hear the helicopters coming, and it's just pretty much a survival action thing. So I recognise these 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 books weren't really meant to be a series, but they were inspired by things like Black Mirror and The Twilight Zone, even Inside Number Nine, in the sense that it's an anthology. Because I love those shows, like I just love anthology shows, but they're a hard sell, and they're even harder selling books. Because I mean, I didn't do any favors. I put like horror covers on them. And they just, they, they didn't take off. But I honestly think that th in terms of theme, it's some of the best stuff that I did. I'm never confident in my writing in terms of execution, but I think the ideas expressed in the books are quite interesting. And, you know, I'm quite proud of them. So whether they, they sell or not, I'm really, I'm glad that they're there. I've started reading Shut Up and Die and, and I'm quite enjoying it. I mean, it's definitely a good read. I was wondering then, would you consider changing the covers then? Because I, mean, I do notice like your covers do have very horror themed images quite often. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I just don't know what to do with that. I think even if I change the covers, the whole, I think it may be the anthology thing that's tripping people up and people do enjoy series. I, I've always flocked towards standalones as a reader and a writer. I understand the value of series. I I wouldn't even know where to start, like in terms of cover, because unless I did a, like a sort of uniform cover for the three and link them, I don't know. I I probably consider it, but it's not a priority to be honest. I think I I tend to just think about what I'm doing now as opposed to trying to sell books that are a hard sell. But it's it's, it's a good idea for people, you know, if a book isn't selling, the cover is the it's the first marketing point, really, isn't it? So you mentioned Wax World was your first one in that series. What, what, so what was the inspiration of that then? It was the most mundane moment of my life that, that inspired that book. I, I was living in Australia at the time, and, and I was just having a lazy day on the couch. And I, I literally got up off the couch, and I looked out the window across the street, and there was this car and it was parked in the weirdest place in the driveway. It wasn't in the driveway and it wasn't out the driveway. It was kind of <laughs> coming out of the driveway, but it just stopped in this weird location. And I think 99.99% .99 of people would have just gone on to the next thing. But I just stood there for a while and thought, oh, it looks like the world is frozen. You know, somebody's either come into that driveway and stopped or they've come out of that driveway and stopped. And I just made a note of that, you know, what if everything just froze? And that was the starting point for it. And then, all right, man, it went all over the place after that in terms <laughs> of ideas. Yeah, I I saw a Korean film called, for the South Korean film called Forgotten, which had a lot to do with identity. And it just went, it was, again, it went all over the place. And it gave me the sort of ideas to take Wax World. It's hard to talk about Wax World without just, ruining the whole thing all I really say is a guy woke up and the world is kind of frozen around him but there were several ideas but mainly the starting point was just that random looking out the window and seeing something in a car that was just in a weird position on the driveway and I suppose that's what as authors we do we kind of hopefully observe and catch things and when we catch them we note them down and then you'll come to them at some point and it'll just be like oh yeah that's what I'm going to do now so what about shut up and die which which sounds a bit more simple in structure perhaps yeah. the idea of yeah sort of the world just being i guess too omnipresent in your awareness i mean that was that was all such strange moments of you know i used to get the train into melbourne city from where i lived and 
I've never been someone who wears headphones outside. It's maybe paranoia on my part. I think someone's sneaking up behind me. Again, it's that horror side. You think the worst, somebody's about to jump you. So I just used to look at people and, and they always had um, headphones and they were always I'd like, there's nobody just sit out the window and daydream anymore. You know, I used to get into trouble for that at school. And now I think it's like a lost art. Nobody's, everybody's, and there's nothing wrong with it, but it's like, did he ever take their headphones out? And my wife's the same. She's always got something on. And I see her go out for a dog walk and I'm with the headphones on. I'm like, what if somebody jumps her from behind? How does she, how does, how do people know? You know, I'm just constantly thinking the worst. So I think it was that overstimulation thing that I then took a leap into the future and thought, you know, what if that has some kind of effect down the line where we take off the headphones and we get kind of like addicts, we get jittery. You know, yeah, I think we're not too far from that in some cases, to be honest. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. Like you'd write these extreme dystopian futures and and people in the reviews say, yeah, I can see this happen. I can see this happen. And you're like, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I see with my daughter. She's a teenager now and just like can't leave the phone. I mean, she reads on her phone, manga and whatnot and, or listening to music, but but has a hard time even putting it down for five or 10 minutes yeah, you know, yeah. Just without coming back to it. It just it seems to all of a sudden gravitate to her hand basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just like, what would you do if you had to sit there for 10 minutes in silence, just with your thoughts? Like I've said that to my wife, I just sit there and collect your thoughts. She's like, I do not want to collect my thoughts. <laughs> that's the last thing I want to do. Yeah, that's another frightening idea, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> people, people don't yeah. want to be alone with their thoughts. Yeah. I know. I know. Like what's so bad about your thoughts, you know? Yeah. Everyone wants to be distracted. That's what it seemed like. I think that was the main inspiration. Everybody's seeking distraction and maybe that's not the way to fulfillment. Let's put it that way. Mm. Well, I mean, the, the, I mean, we have the whole... I guess the mindfulness movement to try and counter that, but which, which is like you say, it's exactly the opposite. It's being present in the moment, whereas everyone else seems to want to be absent from the moment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, I wish they would teach things like meditation in school for primary schools and stuff like that and, and get kids into being more mindful from a young age. I mean, they might not stick with it, but some, some might and, it's so worth it. Like I, I've done meditation for years and I love it. And I, I just don't think I could, that's the first thing I do usually in the morning is maybe a bit of exercise and then meditate because right, writers need to exercise, man. And they, oh, yeah. they need to move. Yeah. It's like the most, one of the most unhealthy jobs. So, but yeah, I usually exercise, meditate and, and yeah, it's, uh, we, we, we need that back. I think, you know, I mean, my daughter's primary school did try to teach them a little bit of it. And I don't know how good the teachers were. I mean, they're probably not trained very well in it, yeah. but yeah, I just, I think that the number of children of that age that will actually take to it are probably incredibly small and would have to have like a supportive parental structure or family yeah. to, to really pick that up because they just don't yeah. have the interest in uh sitting still my daughter was my, my daughter was like it's just so boring <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know i know it's i think you have to start them so young so that they have that almost before they have the devices so they maybe mm. recognize the value in it because if you're just sitting there and you're used to being on your ipad or whatever you'll be thinking you know i'm missing something here but there's, there's gold in that silence there is. Yeah. It's hard to teach them though. Cause once they get into their, their peer circles as well, then you have a yeah, whole, whole yeah. other issues of trying to 
combat content. Oh, you have my sympathy, <laughs> man. I don't have children, but I have nieces and good luck to you, man. But they're so they're so good with the devices now. They see them pick them up and they're just they're just getting it right away. And you see like the old age pensioners taking like three weeks to send a text and and that's the future, Me. like you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I, I'm I'm so slow in the text. I'm sure it's embarrassing for anyone, anyone who's confident with it. But I mean, it's it's a Star Trek future for sure. They're just going to be like, yeah. You know. So the third book in that in the dystopia veil was the Killing Floor, which which feels kind of like a well, you described it already, but sort of the purge set in England. The first thing that came to mind when you were describing it was, uh, have you tried selling it to the BBC or something? <laughs> I don't know if they'd welcome it because I think they're the ones that actually introduced the cull. And that's what you're paying your television license for, folks. You know, no, I, I mean, I think it would be, it's one of my favorites. It's definitely one of my favorite covers, Killing Floor. And I love this. It's very short. It's a novella. It just kind of gets on with it once the cull is announced and you've got all these little mods running around and mopeds and stuff and the government are coming in. It's, it's a lot of fun. That was inspired by... A random comment by Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones when he said something about the band being in a little kind of secluded hideaway once. And there was a knock on the door. Something else happened after knocking the door, but I stopped at that point and, and thought, that's quite a cool idea. A band in this contained location, they get like a knock on the door. I changed the knock on the door to a television announcement, <laughs> but I love this idea of this, this band in the country. And then, yeah, it went a bit mental after that. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of you just go a bit mental. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, I should just leave that on the, the, the author bio. It went mental. Yeah. Because one thing I was thinking about with the description of, of the killing floor was we, we see a lot of people talking about, oh, there's too many people on the planet. Oh, we need to get rid of more people. I find it quite depressing, to be honest, uh, that mm -hmm. kind of comments. First of all, because, I mean, who who would you get rid of? Right. Okay. Yeah. You want to get rid of people you don't like, but what if you're one of the people that's not liked, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but you know, it, it goes even far enough that the UN uh, is supporting a group called One Planet, One Child, which got in big trouble in Canada, actually, because they, they put a poster up in Vancouver saying, the best thing you can do for your child is to not have a second one. And what got them in trouble was the picture. They had a little black baby. And you can you can imagine right away, like whoever was in charge of advertising must have really dropped the ball on that one. But yeah. I just find the idea kind of sad in general. I mean, already as our, our society's advanced technologically, our birth rate's gone down. The population still goes up because our children are living longer. So there's a you know pulse going through the population. But you know, when all the developing countries reach technological advancement like the west for example the birth rates will be quite low already and, and china's already discovered that you can't just turn off and on a birth birth rate you know? yeah <laughs> you stop them from having children and then they they don't want to have yeah. them again <laughs> exactly yeah yeah I, I remember that whole china thing you know and it's like the idea of not having a brother or a sister is quite sad and like, I don't know if it's overpopulation or just the population that they are just uh, doesn't know how quite to manage the world yet. We, we're, we've still got a lot to learn in terms of being a civilized species. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with you, not convinced it's the numbers that are the problem. 
It's the behavior. But so the killing floor wasn't inspired by that idea necessarily. I think that's just, as I was saying, like with people with headphones and me thinking about people jumping them, I just tend to think <laughs> the worst, you know? <laughs> I like check the door at night, you know, make sure this door is locked because I can just imagine people coming up with clubs in the middle of the night. And I'm actually reading right now Helter Skelter, the book about the Manson murders. And that is, that's like the bedtime reading before I go to sleep, you know, reading about those guys and what they did, Sharon Tate and Jay Sabring and, and Abigail Folger and the other guy back in the day. And it's like, that's horror. Like what people could do to people like that. You know, she was heavily pregnant and that's, I mean, we talk about horror, like my stuff is hopefully just entertainment horror. No one has real nightmares, but you know, what Charles Manson did back in the day, that that's real horror, what people do to people. Yeah, I'm a bit horrified that you do that for your bedtime reading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I know. I don't have bad dreams either. Like, it's, I don't know if I'm just becoming numb to it. And if I am becoming numb to it, I, that's, that's concerning. <laughs> I mean, I, I uh, have an issue with the headphones sometimes worrying about traffic or something, but I don't usually think people are going to jump me from behind. <laughs> uh, maybe it's a Glasgow thing, man, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have been there, so I can perhaps yeah. understand some of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you just don't know. I used to like have people come on the bus behind me. I was like, don't sit right behind me. And you'd, they would sit behind you and you can hear them heavy breathing. And then you'd hear them unzipping the rucksack and you think, you're pulling out like a machete or something. I need to put it back in my head. <laughs> Sometimes oh my a bag of imagination is not a good thing. Well, Glasgow does have uh, parts of Glasgow I've heard has one of the, some of the lowest uh, life expectancy in the well in the Western world. Yeah, and man, it's it's kind of always been that way. It is the land of deep fried Mars bars. <laughs> That's true. Well, I think that was Aberdeen. <laughs> yeah, that probably has something to do with it for sure. Yeah. So the last series in this sort of alternate futures that you write would be the the Butch Nolan trilogy, which which I would probably label as Mad Max in America. So what what inspired that one? Because it's basically I won't give too much away because just thinking over the first couple of chapters that they could get for free, so I won't say too much. But it, it's basically not surprising that it starts in Hollywood, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, uh, but what, so yeah, was there anything particular that inspired that one or was it again, sort of active imagination? Well, I think you, you actually answered the question. It was Mad Max. I've been a big, massive fan. I wanted to, I think I had come off the last Dystopiaville books and I, I wanted to write something just purely as post-apocalyptic as I could get it. And then I probably binged the, the four Mad Max films. I have the, the graphic novels as well. And I think it was just a love letter to that whole world, George George Miller and what he'd created. Because I love those films. Like, I just, I, I adore them. Mad Max 2 is one of my earliest memories of, like, sitting in front of the TV and that being on. And it's such a shock to a young mind when you see the look. The, you know, he kind of almost went a long way to inventing that post-apocalyptic <laughs> look with the, um, you know, the Mohicans and stuff like that mm. and the motorbikes and such a, an assault on the senses and I've always loved it and I think I wanted to do something like that and I kind of just shamelessly I don't it didn't rip off this Mad Max but it's if you like Mad Max you, you, you would probably get on board with Butch Nolan and the as I began to write it there became a bit of a John Wick element to it because of his motivation throughout the whole series he's basically seeking revenge for somebody it's not really a spoiler, but someone kills his dog 
And I don't usually kill animals in my books. Like people, yeah, but animals, <laughs> no. But that time, I I kind of had the, I wanted him to be chasing this guy, and I had needed the motivation. And it was like kill a person, and like what would piss me off? Somebody kill my dog. That's that, you know. And then that became his. That was just a, a lot of fun to write. Really, this guy just who was like a, a fighter. You knew how to shoot. He just could kick ass and. The first one, Nolan's Ark, is just insane with these big trucks running around Hollywood and stuff. And yeah, maybe there's a bit of projection there, splattering like Hollywood and violence and blood. And and the second one, Manhunter, is like a Western horror, which is not... Well, actually, it's not even Western horror. Western dystopian, probably more. And the third one is called Deathflix, which is um, really Netflix meets Thunderdome in the future. Okay. I had a lot of fun with that series. Yeah, I mean, Mad, Mad Max 2 is definitely the classic, definitely. Uh, it's interesting, you, you mentioned John Wick. Is that who you see sort of Butch Nolan as? I almost envision more of a gritty Schwarzenegger or something. <laughs> yeah, no, I think he is more of a gritty Schwarzenegger. I think the only reason I put John Wick in is because the early reviews, people were commenting on that motivation about the, the dog mm-hmm. being um, killed and... I was like, you know, you know, I might as well just add that along the Mad Max thing. But no, definitely more of a big hulking guy, like some kind of UFC fighter who can also shoot and just drive big, massive monster bus trucks and cause carnage. So was there was it on purpose that you said it in Hollywood as, as a sort of a commentary? Or just, did you just think that that would be a great place to start it? I, oh man, I honestly can't remember. I think the point that he became... Because he was an actor in a sort of Walking Dead style TV show. I forget my own books, man. I'm trying <laughs> to remember this. As I say, I, I, once I finish a book, it just goes out of my head. So I think it's because an, he was an actor that I put it there. And I was pr- maybe at the time I was reading something or I had just learned something. I know I remember it's around Paramount Studios as well. So something probably dropped at the time that made me want to set it in that that place i think as well to have those vehicles that are in the first book i had to kind of have them as tv props so it made sense to have them in sort of uh near near a big studio and without giving anything away then the the bad guy was inspired uh by anyone yeah yeah and but i tried to avoid i mean it's very i think it's probably very obvious when people see you know people read and what his name is and stuff, what who he is inspired by. Mm. But I tried to avoid that because I had been inspired by that same guy, certain president, long before. And But it's hard not to be inspired by the last four years, you know, and to have yeah. villains, especially political villains who are, who are like that. So I think Stephen King's been doing that since the dead zone, but I've only just caught up. So yes, but I, I did try to even in physical appearance, make this character, this politician, unlike him, because I realized that it's it's too obvious, you know, what, yeah, I, was, yeah. what I was doing there. I think uh, we're going to have many more politicians probably in the coming years to inspire such stories as well. Yeah, <laughs> I'm still like... waiting for a Boris Johnson villain, you know? So I think, oh, I was curious, one last question there. So you had the, the kids in this story, at the, and they come in, I think, in chapter two, so it's not a not a spoiler or anything, but and what what inspired that? Because he clearly he really loves animals. Did you did you want them sort of something to drive his maybe his humanity, or was there was there some contrast you were going for there? Yeah, exactly that. It's sort of to drive his humanity and to sort of 
have a different perspective because Nolan was is a bit of a he he's a bit of a he's a bit misanthropic. He 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 does not like the world, does not like people, and that would make for kind of a bleak if it was just through his perspective. So we had these younger characters whose names I think one of them was called Axel. And the others, man, I would have to look at the book to remember myself. But yeah, it's it's a much different perspective when you have these kids and they can kind of, once they sort of meet up with Nolan, they can kind of get more of his character out of him. And they would do it probably better than adults would do it because kids have a way of kind of, you know, teasing out the real person. And I think, I, think, I, I know I am probably a little less guarded with, children than I would be with adults because mm. they don't view you the same with the same yeah. sort of maybe prejudices. So they're yeah, not, kids yeah. were an important point. They're not as threatening either, are they generally? Well, uh, different, way, different uh, ways, uh, maybe different ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking of children of the corn or children of the village of the ground <laughs> or whatever, you know? <laughs> Straight to the horror. <laughs> yeah, that's my mind, man. I apologize. So just got a couple more questions before we get to the second segment. And so, I mean, I asked these ones of most of my guests. And so I was wondering, like, do you find the, the current period, we're going through a lot right now, and do you, do, you, do you find it particularly inspiring for doomsday, apocalyptic, or even horror stories? Or, or do you feel that maybe we're, I don't know, maybe we're just too focused on the now and that sort of there's always been terrible stuff that have happened and we just like in the past it's kind of through a different window and and now is now and maybe we're overreacting a little bit i i think there has always been this horrible stuff that we have just i think maybe last year it was possibly more influential than it is now and maybe there was this prediction i think last year that we were going to see this glut of books that would be influenced by the pandemic but I mean, I don't know about you, Edwin, but I haven't really seen any. I've, I've seen more books veering away from the dark subjects. I know that uh, last year, a lot of authors who wrote horror, apocalyptic, dystopian, their sales dropped. I mean, mine took a hit mm. as well. People wanted to get away from that. And, but I did hear people saying that we're going to see a lot of books influenced by this. And if we are, I've, I've still to see them. And I think we've, I think we've got past it. And we're just sort of, we're obviously not back to normal in terms of the real world, but in terms of the way writers are influenced, I think, I think we are back to where we were. I don't think it's, I don't think there's going to be this big glut of COVID-19 fiction. I could be wrong, but I just don't, I don't foresee it happening. It does seem like a lot of the pandemic type stories were written before the actual pandemic. And and so they were just there already, weren't they? People were inspired by Ebola and, and everything else. I've, I've seen a few like Ebola post-apocalypse stories on Amazon box sets. And, you know, I think, I think we're past that. I, don't, I just don't see a glut of COVID books coming. But, you know, next scene in the movie, there will be like this barrage of COVID books and like, oh, you were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so is, is there a, a period in, in human history that you feel more drawn to? Or do you, do you really like writing in the present? Is this, is this sort of your period? Not particularly, no. I've I I do like writing in the present, but if I was to force myself to even think about going back, I would probably, as a music person, as ex musician, massive Beatles fan, probably going into the sixties, maybe the early seventies. I think it was a really interesting time, culturally, 
there was so much going on. I, I really like that period. I, I would love to write. I don't think I have touched upon that. I, I tend not to think in terms of what year it is or anything. I just, I'll set it now or set it in some kind of bleak future. But if I was to go back, I don't, I don't know if I would do historical fiction going way back because the research for that is off the charts, man. But if, if I was to do anything, I would go like mid sixties, maybe, you know, Beatles yeah. Revolver, Sergeant Pepper period. I think there's there's some interesting stuff to be done there. Yeah, that was definitely a, a decade of uh, experimental music, wasn't it? Yeah, experimental everything. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, even the CIA was getting involved in that. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So two last questions here in this segment, similar. So of the many issues facing humanity at the moment, which one would you feel most inspired to write a story about? Oh, that's interesting. Cannot go COVID because that's far too obvious. Many issues facing humanity. And this could be positive or negative or just technological development. No, no, in my mind, it would still be focused on technology. I'm not quite sure off the top of my head what I would, but it would be the way that we interact with technology. It's so interesting. And I'm not a technophobe or anything like that. I think they're all tools and they're all very useful. I mean, I get to keep in touch with my family. I, we live in different sides of the world and technology keeps us, you know, I, my grand passed away last year. I got to see the funeral via, you know, technology. So, but there is just that element of people who abuse the technology. They use it to spread hate or misinformation. And that does fascinate me, the way that we the way that we're communicating, we're using these tools, we can use them either for good or we can use them for, and I think I'm fascinated just watching people who try to spread misinformation. We've always been doing it through newspapers and stuff, but now the speed that we can do it, you can go on Twitter and you can see it. Someone can just post a tweet and they might have a big following and they might post something so ridiculous and outrageous and they get like tens of thousands of likes and retweets. And it's like, that's so obviously bullshit what they're saying, but because the technology, we can spread so much. So I think it's, if it's an issue, <laughs> I would love to do something positive, you know, but I think I'm fascinated with the sort of the dark side of technology. And it's not even the dark side of technology. It's how it brings out the dark side of, of people. Because it's always a reflection of us in the end, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, mm -hmm. you can put all the you can put all the guns, the tanks, all the technology in a, in a room by itself. It'll be the most peaceful room in the world. Put in a hundred people and it'll be chaos. Yeah, it'll be the killing <laughs> <It's> floor. <us>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all the money, you know, nobody will do anything. It'll be the most quiet, lovely, peaceful room. Put in a hundred people, different colors, different nationalities, different religions, and watch them go. Yeah, sometimes just different parts of the same city, isn't it? That's probably enough. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, totally. So I think you answered the last question already. <laughs> Sorry. Then which would be, which of the many concerns, well, which of the many issues would, would give you the most concern that we'd want to get right moving forward? And then I can probably assume from what you've just said that technology would be there. That. Yeah, I just think one. we, maybe we're just, because technology is, it's moved so fast in the last 20 years. Like if you look back 2000, 2001, I mean, I didn't have a laptop or anything like this that I'm, I was quite slow at the party, but I, I didn't have an internet connection until mid 2000s really. And 
the, the things have just accelerated so fast and, and maybe we just are so, maybe we're still quite immature with it and we don't quite know how to, we're like kids with a toy who just hasn't quite figured out how to use it. But because in some ways in culture, we kind of encourage stupidity and I'm thinking of reality TV shows here, which I despise <laughs> with a vengeance, man. Most people just go home, they sit and they churn out garbage on TV and then we get the technology in their hands and they don't, know the positive ways that we could use this to spread good and instead we just kind of hate upon one another so yeah it would still be the technology like how we wrestle with it and how we how do we use it for some kind of common good as opposed to just badly spelling hate you know oh god man it's it's you go into the youtube comments sometimes under a video and it's like why did i do that why did i look <laughs> It's like a glimpse into these people have always been there, but they just never had an internet connection before. And, and the sad thing I think also is it's not, it's not just the people it's their kind of, those kind of people are sort of giving now the governments the excuse to use the technology to further, let's say goals that we might not find uh, in our best interest. <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. I mean, look who we just had as president previously, look who is the prime minister. I mean, not to get political, but, I, I I I kind of wonder just where we're going with these some of these choices that we make, you know, in terms of leaders. How much choice we we have these days, anyway? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All, yeah. All sort of a show, isn't it? Speaking of reality television. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one of the weirdest reality shows uh, I found is the Goggle Box. I think it's called, where where it's a show about people watching shows. <laughs> yeah, you're just watching people watching TV and. Yeah. Like what? I mean, we first came to Australia. We we don't watch TV TV anymore. We just have streaming platforms. But we briefly had TV when we first came to Australia, and the adverts, man, for the reality TV shows. It was it was about I don't know what it was called, but it was about this woman who she just sort of closed her eyes, and people would kiss her, and someone else would come along and kiss her, and like based on who she was kissing, she would marry that person <laughs> who was the best kisser. And I, I, you know, I, I understand why Elvis Presley used to shoot the TV, man. If I had a gun, I would have blasted it at that moment. <laughs> I, I can't stand, you know, these, I'm a celebrity grave digger or whatever. I just want to, <laughs> as you can see in like the London books, I, I, I tend to vent a wee bit too much about reality TV. I hate it. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely one of those scourges of humanity. So I wanted to move on to the second part of the interview then, which is I'm calling it Revenge of the Muse. Prior to the interview, about a week ago, I sent you four randomly rolled story cubes that represent the categories of hero, action, setting, and science fiction element and kind of asked you to prepare a, about a one-page introduction to a story. And so for, the, for those following along at home who'd like to try this, the, the images will be posted on uh, my website at alternatefutures.co.uk in the podcast section. So I'll read the introduction and then we can discuss the cube images sort of in your, your process of, of brainstorming the story, I suppose. At sundown, Sir Maverick stood on the deck of the Seahawk with the last of his warriors gathered around him, grizzled veterans, every last one. They stood in silence as the battered vessel cut through the waves, approaching the ocean fortress that was so big it swallowed the horizon. Here it was, their last chance at revenge. Revenge upon the usurper, the rogue knight who'd killed their king and seized power while Sir Maverick's elites attended to royal affairs in the east. Sir Maverick reached for the light pistol fastened to his hip. 
He was leaking blood from so many wounds that he didn't dare lift his shattered armor to look. What did it matter? His king was dead. The woman he loved was dead. The rest of his beloved elites were in bad shape. To a man, they were done. Almost. Here came the usurper and his traitors. Once they'd fought together, side by side, Sir Maverick and this man. Dressed in full armor, the usurper stood at the head of a fleet of lightning-fast warships racing out of the fortress, skimming over the waves as they charged across the ocean battlefield. Sir Maverick's attention was drawn to a blurry shape beside the king. He couldn't see what it was. A flag? A weapon? Damn these old eyes, he said. The ocean was littered with floating bodies that bathed in the violet glow of sunset. Sir Maverick's kinfolk, his entire bloodline, shattered. And somewhere, out there, the remains of his beautiful wife, Diana. The usurper had always coveted her beauty, and now, if he couldn't have her, no one could. Sir Maverick glared at the new king, perched like a figurehead at the bow of the warship Goliath. The two sides exchanged fire. Hold your course, Sir Maverick roared as the Seahawk charged forwards, picking up speed, dodging light fire and heading straight for the enemy fleet, straight towards a traitor's vessel with no intention of stopping. The usurper had to know that Sir Maverick was on a suicide mission. If Diana was no more, what was the point of living? But the bastard traitor would leave this world with the elites. He'd go up in a ball of flames before falling back down to hell. The end was close. Sir Maverick and his men sang the songs of old. Songs of victory. He could hear the usurper calling to him, yelling, screaming. The traitor was pointing at the blurry shape standing beside him. What did it matter? There was no time for Goliath to escape the Seahawk. Not now. Sir Maverick's voice dropped out of the chorus. He staggered backwards across the deck, away from his men, watching as the blur beside the usurper slowly took shape. Damn these old eyes, he screamed, raking at his eyeballs as if he wanted them out. Damn these old eyes. Diana, she was standing at the head of Goliath. She was holding the bastard's hand. So you had the four story cubes. I don't, do you, re you remember them well, what they were? I've got them up on the screen ah, right now. Excellent. Okay. So if you could just sort of walk me through your thought process, maybe start with the hero and then sort of how you develop the ideas and fit them into the story or fit the story around them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I saw the hero, I, that was the, that was the most important cube for me because I, I immediately thought of a knight and because I just saw the little fencer. And then I kind of turned that into a night and I thought of, do you know the film Excalibur by John yeah. Borman? I just had the, the last part. There's like this massive bloody battle at the end of Excalibur and it's kind of, it's dark or it's early morning or something. And I just had, the, I love that film and I love that moment. And I just thought, okay, so the hero could be a knight. Go with that, keep that in my head. And then I skipped, I think down the way instead of across. So it was, it looked like sundown. So that fit perfectly with the image that I had. So I think I set this introduction at sundown. And so those two elements came together very quickly. I went over to the right and we had this kind of castle, fortress, palace. And it looks like there was waves or water coming out of them. And I thought, ah, so maybe instead of setting this on the land, I can set this on the ocean and I can make it, you know, <laughs> I got like water world in my head, but I quickly kind of shoved that aside and just kept the Excalibur on water scene. And then I skipped up to the action, which was the one that I kind of lingered on the most. I was like, ah, so does this mean 
heavy action or does this mean I imply heavy action? I kind of labored on that one the most, but then I sort of just had this scene of these uh, knights on water. I love revenge stories. So this was like a set in revenge. It was like a guy, the knight, a Sir Maverick coming over the water to get revenge for something that this, this other knight had done. He sort of sees, I, I don't go into too much detail about what's happened, but because it's only an introduction and you want to leave a lot of space. But I had the idea that someone had taken power from a king while this elite band of knights had been away. And obviously these knights are on speedboats, so this isn't historical knights, <laughs> you know, just in case. But yeah, I had Star this... Wars on water kind of thing. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so I had this revenge scene in my head. Really, I tried to sort of make it fast-paced. I've often been accused of slow starts in my books before, so I was trying to be mindful of that action cube and keep it moving. And yeah, it just kind of came together after that, that I, I, I was trying to like set it up as an intro, not a complete little piece of writing, which, is, which was quite hard to do. But I, I set it up in the end that at the end of the, the introduction, you could see it maybe going on to be a sort of, kind of, I hate to say that, like a love triangle revenge story where if we avoid the collision that seems to be happening in the, if we somehow just write that out or just kind of write around it, we can continue the story where Samaric gets revenge upon not only the a serpent knight who took power from the king, you could take him getting revenge on his wife as well because she's betrayed him. So I tried to cram a lot in there, like initially our action revenge, straightforward and then a little twist at the end where you see that his wife has some sort of colluded with the usurper and from there it could maybe expand into a sort of another revenge story maybe his knights are gone as well and it's just a kind of last stand a kind of thinking as well of have you seen the film point blank with lee marvin yeah that's Mm. i love that story i love revenge stories where he's trying to get back at his wife and his former colleague who betrayed him. So I think there was a bit of that. Excalibur, point blank. Yeah, Star Wars on water type thing because (laughs) the knights don't have swords. They have these light pistols. So it was a lot of fun to do. Like I I struggled with the action one. I was like, you know, Mark, you're always slow starting. People say you're a slow starter, so you have to get right off the blocks. And it was a good exercise for me in trying to get things moving right away. I enjoyed it. It was good fun. Oh, excellent. Thanks. Because, yeah, I, I, I've done one as well and I did, did have some, yeah, I found it a little bit challenging. Uh, yeah, <laughs> challenging. The, the cubes, yeah. I've only seen one out of the several I've rolled so far for various authors that seem to come together very, very easily. Yeah, um, yeah. Consistently, but otherwise, yeah, you just kind of got to pick out the, the weird cubes you get given and <laughs> figure out what to do with them. <laughs> Well, fortunately, you said it's a loose, uh, keep it loose. So I, I will keep it loose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't get too too tied down. So I think that's about all the time we have then. So before I let you go, do you have any books you're currently working on that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I have a book coming back from my editor, Kelly, tomorrow. She's based up in Brisbane and she sends me a, a draft. Well, it's like a third draft that she has edited for me. So I get that back tomorrow and... I'm kind of looking forward to it, getting back into it. Um, 
kind of dreading it because there's all these comments and stuff that you have all this work that you yeah. have to do with it. It's like, can you not just say it's perfect the way it is? No, right? <laughs> you just all these track changes and do this. It's a book called Scream Test. It's kind of a horror, psychological thriller, maybe more of a horror. And it is also interestingly set in Hollywood. I think I have issues with Hollywood and yeah. reality TV. <laughs> Sounds like, yeah. Yeah. So when do you think that might be released then, or is it still too early to say? Uh, probably kind of late-ish August. Hopefully, oh, okay. if I can just get the head down, I will probably just lock myself away for a while and do those edits. I will also give it to my wife to look at because she has, she is very left-brained and she can spot these little mistakes and little things that people wouldn't see. And she also has that female perspective that I need from, thankfully my editor is female, but I always try and seek out a female perspective when I'm writing female characters because I'm paranoid that I, essentially I'm just writing a chick with a dick, you know? It's yeah. like, you know, trying to write actual, something that a woman would say, the way they would behave. You need that female perspective. So I'll give it to her and then I, I will, I'll just lock myself away with that again. And hopefully sometime it will surface late August. Oh, excellent. And uh, where can people find you online then? You can find me on the website, markgillespieauthor.com. If you want to just browse the books, you can go to just Google Mark Gillespie Amazon and that'll take you to the Amazon author page. I'm on Twitter as Mark G underscore author, but I'm not super active there. I'm on Facebook and Mark Gillespie's writing stuff a wee bit more active there. So I'm around if you, if you look for me. Excellent. Well, thanks very much, Mark. Okay. Great talking to you and uh, best yeah, of luck did. in the future then. And same to you, Edwin. Thanks again. Thank you for listening. Transcripts of this and all episodes are available at alternatefutures.co.uk, as are the StoryCube images and original story openings written by my guests. If you've enjoyed this, why not share it with friends and other sci-fi fans you know? If there are any indie sci-fi creators you'd like to see featured, send me a message at podcast at alternatefutures.co.uk. Finally, if you'd like to support this podcast financially, you can do so on Subscribestar. Just search for Alternate Futures. There you can find extra discussions and information that hasn't made it into the final edit. And thank you once again for listening. I hope you'll join us on the next episode. This is the future. Human error. This is the future.